Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Today's conversation is with Sam Cowling, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Denison University. His new book, Abstract Entities, is just out from Routledge. Here's a true sentence. The number seven is odd. Now, what's philosophically odd about this sentence is that it seems to imply that there must be numbers, including the number seven. Just as the truth of the Statue of Liberty is in New York implies that there is such a statue, as well as the fact that it's in New York. But the number seven, unlike the statue, isn't located anywhere, and we can't see it or touch it. We could conceivably find the Statue of Liberty at some point in a silo in Nevada, but we could never find the number seven in a silo in Nevada. Plato argued long ago that the number seven, among other things, is what he calls an abstract entity. But why should we think that reality includes such things as abstract entities, as well as the concrete things that we can see and touch? In his new book, Cowling provides a sophisticated discussion of what abstract as opposed to concrete entities might be, what reasons we have for thinking that they exist, and how we might explain mathematical, scientific, and other truths, and our knowledge of such truths, if we don't think that they do. This deftly written critical survey of the problem of abstract entities is an excellent introduction to fundamental metaphysics, and it brings together the main arguments on both sides, as well as raising new issues in the Platonist nominalist debate. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Sam. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. Yeah, this is a really interesting book that brings kind of up to date. I, and it's an old problem. It's interesting that the the book comes out as part of Routledge's new problems in philosophy. But of course, the problem of abstract entities is an old problem. I mean, it's been around <laughs> at least at least since Plato. Um, and it remains a, a kind of a perennial problem. Uh, so it's very, um, it's very nice to be able to see something in metaphysics that's so nicely focused on a particular problem uh, in one nice, clean, well-written place. Um, maybe you can say, first of all, before we get into the, the book itself, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself as a philosopher, how you, how you got into it and how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, so I, I grew up on the West Coast of Canada, um, and I ended up um, doing my undergraduate work at the University of Victoria. I sort of entered um, university with a pretty open mind about what I might study, but um, I, I gravitated to philosophy pretty quickly. Um, the sort of palpable sense of intellectual disorientation that comes with some of these fun philosophical puzzles. Um, and then also just the kind of, you know, over the course of a single school day, you could spend time thinking about the nature of well-being uh, sort of the appearance reality distinction, all these sort of good puzzles. And it was also a fun way to sort of think about, learn about um, some sort of general historical trends um, through the philosophical lens. And so um, after I'd finished at the University of Victoria, I decided to go on and do a, a, a master's degree at the University of Manitoba, um, which is also in Canada, it's in, in Winnipeg. Um, and I wrote a dissertation on myriology, sort of um, questions about how the nature of parts and wholes and the parted relation connect up with questions about what exists and what there is. Um, and from there, I ended up um, doing metaphysics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It was a really neat time to, to do metaphysics there. Um, 
Lynn Baker uh, was there. Um, Jonathan Schaffer was there at the time. Uh, and I wrote a dissertation with uh, Phil Bricker um, on some questions in uh, modality and identity. And in particular, I focused on the thesis of hexedism, which is a kind of um, peculiar thesis in modal metaphysics about whether, for example, um, things could be qualitatively just as they actually are. Things could be the same shape, size, there could be the same number of things, but facts about the identity of things might vary or differ in, in interesting ways. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of possibility and the nature about possible worlds um, and spending a lot of time thinking about, for example, um, the debates that sort of stem from David Lewis's work on modal realism and the sort of general question about what kinds of things possibilities are. Um, and, you know, I ended up writing a few papers um, concerning the sort of metaphysics of possibilities, the metaphysics of properties. Um, but there's a way in which the sort of the, the question about whether there are abstract entities, the sort of debate between Platonists and, and nominalists, which we'll talk about in a bit, was kind of my philosophical first love. I think that there's something just really powerful and interesting about the, the question of whether there might be more to reality uh, besides the sort of spatiotemporal realm and sort of how, if at all, we can kind of figure out what's up there. So this book is in some sense is sort of uh, a long time brewing and my sort of best effort to kind of weigh in and, and kind of um, chart a path through the many, many arguments and complications um, and distinctions that arise in this dispute. So that, that's how the book kind of bubbled up. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, so let me let's start. I mean, the the question of abstract objects. I mean, there's you know, uh, what are they? Uh, do they exist? Um, why should we think they exist? Um, uh, it's it's hard to answer one of those questions without answering all of them. So it's it's. The, but I I think one of the ways in which we might start for those who aren't so. Uh, involved in, in metaphysics or metaphysical questions would be to explain a bit what the, what the grip of the problem is. I mean, what, what is important about it? Why, why, should, why should anybody care? I mean, that's sort of a crude yeah. way to put it, but why should somebody who is not all that, who is just being introduced to metaphysics uh, or has a passing interest in it, but not really deeply involved in it. Why, why does this matter? What's, what is the grip that, that it has uh, for, for anybody? I mean, not just pe people like Plato, but um, today. Great. Um, yeah. So let me try and connect up a, a few of these moving pieces, though. You're right that there's sort of um, it's difficult to pry them apart. So um, let's just start. And I, I, I suspect we'll return to this later. Um, what am I sort of what do most people intend when they talk about abstract entities? Um, usually what they have in mind are going to be or the sort of idea of an abstract entity is kind of guided by some some key examples. So maybe the most familiar ones would be numbers. So we tend to think that um, the number seven is radically and drastically unlike familiar entities like tables and chairs and elbows and puddles. Um, but alongside entities like numbers, there's other sort of philosophical creatures. Um, you might think here about possibilities. Um, so you might talk about the, you know, there are three ways to win the chess game. Well, what are these ways? What kinds of things are ways? They're surely not things that I can see, smell, or touch. Um, other paradigmatic sort of cases of abstract entities would be, and sort of the kinds of uh, creatures philosophers are really interested in, would be things like meanings, um, in particular propositions. So you might think here about the Pythagorean theorem. It's not a number, 
but it's the kind of thing that we think is important and we think it's true and we think its application is interesting. Um, but again, it, it's a very peculiar kind of creature when put in sort of contrast with ordinary dry goods um, that we're more familiar with. Maybe another one is if we think about properties, um, you might think about them here as sort of universals or something like Plato's forms, but properties like goodness or fragility or humanity. Um, it seems that there are some truths about these things. It seems like, again, they're sort of important and they figure into our understanding of the world. But they're very, very different kinds of, of entities if they exist at all. So abstract entities, roughly speaking, are going to be that sort of category of peculiar entities that we can distinct or sorry, that we can contrast with what are often called concrete entities. So concrete entities, um, you know, paradigmatic examples are going to be things like tables, chairs, cars, you know, of course, quite small things too, atoms, cells, uh, and quite large things as well, planets and galaxies and so on. But so we've got this distinction, at least, uh, between abstract entities and concrete entities. And we can return to the sort of how we can, how after all we can sort of make sense of that distinction. Um, but there's a few reasons philosophers um, and metaphysicians in particular are interested in these sorts of creatures. Um, one natural project in philosophy is to try and give an inventory of what there is, a sort of story about what there is in reality. And you might think that to give that kind of inventory, you need to figure out whether you want to include along with, you know, genes and volcanoes and, and tables, things like numbers, properties and propositions. So the project of kind of figuring out what there is, sort of the ontological project, um, is sort of intimately bound up with this question of whether we should think that they're abstract entities or not. At the same time, thinking about these sorts of things helps us kind of illuminate a bunch of philosophical puzzles about, for example, the connection between what we think is true and what exists. It seems, for example, that um, seven is, a, is an odd number. And so it seems like there are odd numbers. So it seems like odd numbers exist. It would seem odd, for example, it would seem strange, rather, um, to believe that seven is an odd number and then quickly say, but by the way, there are no numbers. That speech seems sort of puzzling um, in a way that philosophers, at least if they wanted to deny their abstract entities, would have to make good on. Um, there's a few other ways in which I think philosophers should care about abstract entities, maybe more than some are inclined to, um, is that there's this kind of dependence of a lot of philosophical projects on uh, commitment to certain philosophical gizmos, um, for lack of a better word. Uh, if you think about someone invested in questions about the foundations of ethics and morality, often they'll talk about whether they're irreducibly normative properties or whether they're fundamentally reason-giving properties, whether there's a property like goodness, whether these moral properties uh, supervene or are based in uh, natural properties. Similarly, you'll find epistemologists talking about the distribution of probabilities over possibilities or talking about what justifies our belief in certain propositions. So there's a way in which a lot of philosophical projects are premised upon or at least assume that these sorts of entities, these abstract entities, are parts of reality or at least admissible bits, uh, admissible uh, entries into our theories. And so there's a way in which figuring out whether they're really out there is a big deal for a lot of philosophy um, and one that metaphysics is, is especially interested in. Okay, good. That's, that's very helpful. Um, so, I mean, you brought in a number of different themes in that, you know, the fact that they figure into our understanding of the world. Um, there is a, a, a very important connection between the idea of truth and the idea of existence. We do have these, we do have ways of talking and ways of thinking in which there, we do want to say that there are truths uh, and yet 
it seems like, you know, what are these things that we're talking about that, you know, we can make certain true statements about, like the Pythagorean theorem, for, theorem, for example. Um, now, there are, there are two positions that you focus on, in, and each of them has different nuanced, you know, subspecies, but the basic two ones are the, the Platonist view um, and the nominalist view. So maybe you could say a bit about that, those two different kinds for, to a first approximation before we get into details. In like a lot of philosophical theses, the sort of Platonism and nominalism dispute is sort of contentiously and maybe unfortunately titled. Um, but the idea behind Platonism it's, is a kind of historical association with Plato and Plato's um, sort of striking view about the nature of reality. Um, for our purposes, well, at least when, I, when I'm talking about Platonism in the book, and I think when a lot of philosophers talk about Platonism in the sort of contemporary context, it's not um, supposed to be tied to Plato's particular view about reality, but it's really just the thesis that in addition to um, concrete entities like, you know, human bodies and chairs, there are some abstract entities. Um, this leaves open what exactly these abstract entities are like, and it leaves open which abstract entities there are. But the sort of common cause for Platonists is belief that in addition to concrete reality, there's at least some uh, some abstract reality, some domain of abstract entities. Um, maybe they're mathematical entities, maybe they're uh, mathematical entities, as well as semantic entities. So entities bound up with our sort of understanding of meaning. And maybe like Plato, um, they include things like properties or universals. So that one sort of challenge for Platonists is figuring out if there is this abstract reality out there, what's up there? What kinds of things uh, sort of reside in Plato's heaven or um, famously Gottlob Frege refers to as a sort of third realm. Um, nominalism sort of contrasts with Platonism insofar as the nominalist denies that there are any abstract entities. Um, for pretty much all nominalists, um, reality is exhaustively and exclusively concrete. It, it's built up and made up sort of only of those kinds of things like, you know, electrons, um, I was going to say space-time regions, but that's actually a, a heated source of debate. Uh, but the sort of nominalist idea would be that there are no none of these sort of philosophical creatures uh, like mathematical entities, uh, semantic entities, or universals. So maybe we should say something about the abstract concrete distinction itself, because if we're if we are discussing whether we should or should not be committed to these abstract entities, uh, we should probably understand a bit more how they're allegedly distinguished from the concrete ones, right? You, 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 uh, let me, let me just, I mean, you mentioned a, a, a few like, uh, you know, atoms are concrete, but numbers are not. Um, uh, but there's, I mean, there's a lot of different entities that, that I hope you would also think about, like, you know, social entities are very complicated, like a university, Right. It's you don't want to identify it with the buildings, with the concrete buildings. But then, of course, then it looks like, hmm, is that you don't want to say a university is an abstract entity. So there's there's a lot of different sorts of things besides the paradigmatic ones of philosophical discussion that make I think make the idea of trying to draw a distinction pretty complicated Um uh, so maybe you could just you know start us off with how the the distinction is standardly drawn. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, in sort of presenting the sort of maybe what, what I, at least in the book call the sort of standard view, it'll quickly become clear. And for the reasons you sort of know that it's a, it's a pretty fraught distinction. Um, but, but one way of thinking about, it, or at least a natural sort of entering wedge into thinking about this dispute between the Platonist and the nominalist is to think about this sort of divide between abstract and concrete reality is sort of carving at sort of one of nature's deepest joints as a sort of especially important difference in the kinds of entities there are. And it's natural to kind of pair it with a bunch of um, sort of structural features. So you might think that there's this kind of, that the abstract concrete distinction is sort of exclusive and exhaustive. That is everything's on, uh, one of those sides of the line and nothing's on uh, both sides. Um, Similarly, you might think that it is sort of an absolute distinction that um, there doesn't sort of admit of degree. It's not relative to where something is or something can't be abstract relative to this thing, but concrete relative to this other thing. And similarly, we might think that um, entities aren't, uh, no entity can sort of move back and forth across the sort of abstract concrete distinction. That is, it's not like at some point a university was abstract and then it becomes concrete and then sadly it becomes abstract again. I think it's sort of um, baked into a lot of philosophical talk about the abstract concrete distinction is this sort of view. Um, and it's guided by thinking about those sort of paradigmatic examples that I began with, like mathematical entities, universals, and propositions. But you're right to press on this because – uh, as soon as we do, we start asking, well, what should I think about, um, you know, soup recipes? What should I think about dance moves? What should I think about universities or fictional characters? Um, it quickly becomes a challenge to try and um, reconcile this sort of standard view of the abstract concrete distinction is especially profound with, um, you know, a, a an ontology replete with all the kinds of things we commonly find ourselves talking about. Um, this this sort of uh, from here the issue goes off in a couple of different directions. Um, one idea is that maybe we can get clear on what exactly it means to be an abstract entity, and once we do that, then we can figure out what to say about um, particularly tough cases. Um, so here, I suppose I could I could say a little bit about some sort of tentative proposals, and not really tentative on the hand. Um, when offered by proposers, um, but I can say a little bit about those, um, the various accounts on offer for analyzing the abstract concrete distinction. Um, okay, sure. Um, and so uh, there are a few features that people have um, taken to be kind of characteristic of abstract entities. So maybe the, the first and most familiar is to think about abstract entities as things that are somehow outside of space and time. Um, they're the kinds of things that don't seem to have a location, uh, any particular spatial location or any particular temporal location. And th this thought is intuitive enough if you start thinking about mathematical entities. It seems weird to say that the number seven is in a bunker in Omaha. Um, it seems kind of peculiar to think that the Pythagorean theorem uh, only exists uh, at certain times. Um, and it seems... Um, so one natural thought is maybe there's something about this sort of distinction between space and time that helps us get a grip on what it means to be abstract or concrete. Uh, it's not obvious that um, this is satisfactory. And I've sort of worked through a bunch of examples in the book. Um, but another, so I'll just kind of move through some of the other uh, proposals. One thought, uh, additional thought for making sense of the abstract concrete distinction is that the real difference is the way in which entities interact with one another. That concrete entities like um, humans and shares are the kinds of things that can come into being and go out of being. They're the kinds of things that bump into certain things. Uh, they're things that stand in causal relations uh, for short. So, um, and again, in stark contrast, it looks like numbers 
aren't the kinds of things that exert causal forces on the world. They're not the kinds of things that are created that came into being at any particular time. I mean, surely it's the case, certain sort of, um, sort of linguistic, uh, representations of numbers came into existence at a certain time, but typically when, uh, philosophers are motivated to posit abstract entities like numbers, they, they think that these things aren't to be rightly identified with sort of mere linguistic representations. So we've got one proposal is abstract entities are non-spatiotemporal entities, unlike concrete entities. Another view would be that abstract entities are non-causal, unlike concrete entities. Another view that sort of kicks around is that abstract entities are distinguished by virtue of their necessary existence, that abstract reality is somehow non-contingent, that it couldn't be any other way, that there's something incoherent when someone says, well, imagine a world where seven is an even number, or imagine a world where uh, the proposition that there are three dogs entails that there are exactly two cats. Um, there's a way in which like that, that seems strange. It seems like abstract reality isn't sort of subject to the kind of uh, contingency that concrete reality is. Um, those are at least three ways that um, philosophers have tried to get at this distinction. And as it turns out, um, there's something problematic about perhaps all of them, um, that when we begin from our sort of intuitive examples and start tracing through metaphysical disputes about the nature of properties, the nature of propositions, the nature of numbers, it looks less and less obvious that those are the apt ways to characterize the distinction. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the three ways that you just mentioned all have kind of obvious problems with them. Um, is, is there a way that you think uh, would be the sort of best, even if there's still some issues with it? one that would be the best from in, in your opinion? There's a general methodological puzzle um, that, that I struggle with and I think is maybe one of the most interesting ones to reflect on with this distinction, maybe with, with any other philosophical distinction. And that's if you tinker with the stock of what entities there are, that is, if you, if you make certain sort of informed philosophical decisions about what you think exists, there's ways in which you can sort of tailor your philosophical analyses to kind of fit that um, your sort of ontology. One way to kind of get at this is um, uh, a potential counterexample to the view that abstract entities are non-spatiotemporal is a kind of Aristotelian view of properties. On this sort of Aristotelian view of properties, the, pro the universal of humanity is, is actually located wherever a human being is located. It's sort of uh, the kind of thing that, unlike the sort of platonic universal, is located in space and time. And so you might think, ah, well, I guess that shows something interesting about the inadequacy of this way of thinking about the abstract concrete distinction. But you can perfectly well imagine someone saying, like, I actually don't accept that as a counterexample because I don't think there are universals of, of that sort. And this kind of this sort of pattern um, can sort of be repeated throughout any of these sort of proposed analyses. If you tinker with the ontology in the right way, you might end up with a satisfactory account of the distinction. Um, where I think this leaves things, though, is um, if you're sort of uh, working through the question of how to be a Platonist or what kind of Platonism looks most attractive, is that um, you need to think first about the kind of explanatory work you want to put Platonism to, the kind of philosophical work um, or philosophical or metaphysical explanations you want abstract entities to give. And the, the view that I end up thinking is maybe the strongest version of Platonism is a kind of view that rejects the ambition of trying to analyze the distinction between the abstract and the concrete and takes the sort of idea of being an abstract entity as um, a kind of uh, conceptual primitive, as a kind of basic notion for theorizing that we can't sort of get underneath in some more fundamental terms by talking about causation or space-time. Um, and so that's the, I can say more of the sort of, uh, the sort of primitivistic view of Platonism, um, but it's one in which 
maybe the project of trying to analyze this distinction in other terms isn't the best one to pursue for Platonists. Let me go back a little bit to the motivation, in a sense. So uh, you mentioned before, you know, the the truth and reality relationship here. The, you know, the basic idea being we think and talk about things like numbers or, I mean, in, in ordinary life, numbers. I won't go to propositions because <laughs> those are creatures of darkness for some people. And, you know, some people are fine. So, you know, numbers is a nice, clear kind of case where we not only do we all think in terms of numbers, uh, we state truths with numbers. Numbers are seem to be essential to the workings of science, and that's another topic you know which we can get into further. Um, but the the important point that I want to press on is this idea that one of the big motivations for thinking that there are any abstract entities is this idea that we need them because we think about them in some way and we state truths about them in some way. And it's this idea that just like with truths about the stuff that we causally interact with, uh, so if you interact with a cat or, or you think about cat, the, the, the word cat or the thought about, you know, the concept of cat has some sort of a causal relationship to those things. And that, that entity out there is at least part of its meaning um, or is closely related to its meaning in some way, determines its meaning. But there's very close relationship there between the idea of reference of, of a term or, or a concept. Um, and then, of course, these things coming together in sentences or thoughts. And, and those sentences or thoughts can be true because of what they refer to in part. And all of that apparatus that we're familiar with from concrete stuff, the stuff that we interact with, seems to get um, imported to or analogized to the whole idea of, well, there must be an abstract realm that corresponds to our thoughts about numbers, for example, just as there's a concrete realm to correspond to our talk and our thoughts about cats or tables or atoms or what what have you. Um, so that that seems to me to be a, a you know a, a huge motivation for this whole idea that there are abstract entities. Um, can you say something about how you view that motivation? I mean, is that is is that First of all, am I am I correct to kind of see that as a as a core idea of the whole debate? And then uh, it seems to raise the problem, if if it is in any case, it seems there is the problem of, you know, have we maybe are, are we just sort of positing these things uh, because we lack a better theory of how to make our how to understand the truth of our sentences or the meaning of our words. I mean, if we had a better theory of meaning or a better theory of truth, we wouldn't be tempted to even try to stretch the way we think about meaning and truth for 
concrete things, we wouldn't even be tempted to think that there's this other realm out there that somehow gives meaning to our talk about, say, numbers or is what is necessary in order to explain uh, the truth of sentences like the Pythagorean theorem or something like that. No, um, no, I, I think that's, that's a lot. That's right. And I think you're sort of hitting on a bunch of sort of philosophical motivations that drive a lot of novelists um, to pursue um, ways of resisting Platonism by, by looking at certain sort of um, maybe alternative pictures about um, thought and talk uh, and reference maybe in particular. Um, I, I can say a little bit about how I kind of conceive of the landscape regarding arguments for Platonism. And I, I think that um, there's a few ways to carve it up. I mean, maybe the 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 easiest way to carve it up is to just think about um, the apparent violence it would do to our ordinary intuitions about the world to be told that it's false, that there are prime numbers. I mean, that there's a way in which if you walk into class and sort of um, put down the nominalist friendly answers on the true false exam, things are going to go poorly for you. And there's a way in which like that, that seems um, there is that kind of um, nominalism does seem to be kind of inhospitable to ordinary um I guess, common sense metaphysics. Another way of thinking about the sort of motivation is that it issues from this kind of uh, commitment to, uh, I guess, the success of our scientific theories in discovering the world and also serving as a kind of authority in figuring out what there is. And there's a way in which when we look to our scientific theories, what we find is the sort of pervasive deployment of of abstract entities. And again, sort of mathematical entities seem to be front and center in that regard. I think what, what becomes interesting is if you begin with those sorts of motivations, figuring out how exactly to deploy the argument and what exactly the sort of assumptions you need about um, the contentfulness of thought and language and what exactly the assumptions you need about the connection between truth and reality. That's where I think it gets um, really interesting. And I think that you're right that um, if, if we began with this kind of philosophical hostility to abstract reality, and then we notice that, well, we, we keep running around avowing mathematical claims um, I guess we need some sort of different semantics for that story or some different way of thinking about our mathematical thought and talk. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting is that if you're motivated by this kind of naturalistic view in, in philosophy, if you're really motivated by taking the sort of findings of science seriously, there's an interesting way in which you can push back on that thought by pointing out what grounds this hostility towards abstract endings? What grounds this hostility towards admitting things like numbers uh, into our sort of overall inventory of the world? Um, for the naturalist, then this I take to be one of the sort of interesting morals of the indispensability argument, often credited to, to Quine and, and Hilary Putnam, is this idea that there's sort of no ground for the nominalist to stand on once they uh, take on sort of naturalism, again, this commitment to sort of authority of science. Because even if you feel a little bit weird about um, taking on uh, a theoretical commitment to abstract entities or the existence of numbers, any sort of case against them would have to itself be grounded in reflections on what works in science or the deliverances of our best scientific theories. So I think that, you, that you're right um, that a lot of non-naturalists get suspicious about um, just moving from our apparent acceptance of the truth of mathematical claims to the existence of mathematical reality. But I think most of the action for trying to settle whether that's um, whether there's a sort of stable nominal strategy for blocking that move is going to really depend in, in large part on where you're coming at it from. If you are a naturalist, I think it's especially hard um, to motivate the sort of move of importing a new semantic theory that blocks um, 
this sort of inference from the truth of a claim like seven is even, sorry, seven is odd to um, there are odd numbers. Well, let me, let me, instead of, instead of putting it in terms of, you know, what grounds the hostility to abstract objects, uh, maybe you can, maybe the nominalist might put it instead as in terms of, well, a lot of this seems to depend on what you, what you rightly called, I think, common sense metaphysics. And the, the nominalist or somebody who's, who's more skeptical about abstract objects or an ob- abstract realm or, or whatever um, might simply say, you know, abstract metaphysics, uh, I sorry, common sense metaphysics is, you know, it's, it's common sense. I mean, common sense doesn't have a super good track record uh in some ways it certainly does uh it's you know maybe common sense in terms of basic ethical norms might make sense or something like that but we have no good reason really to think that common sense is going to really reveal the nature of the world just in the same way that science has shown that our common sense physics or our common sense biology or any of these things, I mean, nobody, nobody thinks that we should stop doing physics the way we do it now. We should go back to do it the way Aristotle did, right? And so you might, so the, it's not so much hostility, it's more just a puzzlement maybe about why should we take our common sense metaphysics as telling us what you know what reality really is like what's what is what's the motivation for that i'm sympathetic to that sort of worry um i I think what maybe one way to think about this sort of um connection with common sense metaphysics as i guess i've committed myself to employing that term uh would be to to start from um the kinds of platitudes we'd ordinarily accept um, and so again, take, there are prime numbers. Um, and then actually, I guess, and this is one, one really key move that doesn't seem to be part of anything like common sense metaphysics is that from the truth of that claim, we are justified in inferring something about the nature of reality, right? I mean, you might think <clears throat> one ambition for the nominalist is to just, um, find a way to uphold in some meaningful salient sense, the truth of claims like there are prime numbers, but then find some other way to be clear that, well, fundamentally speaking, or really, or at the end of the day, or some you know, some suitable prefix, numbers don't exist. And so th- I think there is a way in which you might try and reconcile that intuition um, with nominalism. But I, I think you're right, too, that um, we should be worried about common sense metaphysics. And to be honest, common sense metaphysics, when it's called that, usually has underlying it a bunch of pretty substantive assumptions about the connection between, at least in this case, truth and existence, truth and what there is. Well, I mean, I've been pushing, you know, the nominalist uh, view in a, in a sense, but let me let me just, uh, let's, let's give the Platonist a, a run for his money, uh, or at least a little bit of support. What, there's a number of different arguments that you present in the book uh, for Platonism. Um, so I guess in the interest of, of time, really, uh, what do you think is the most compelling of those arguments? 
there's a way in which um, it critically depends upon where you're approaching philosophy from. If you have any kind of sympathy for the sort of naturalistic view of philosophy as trying to, um, as a kind of mopping up operation to try and make good on the best findings of our scientific theories, I think the sort of indispensability argument that that Quine and Putnam put forward, which points out that there's this kind of ineliminable, or at least apparently ineliminable use of mathematics and our best scientific theories, um, I, th- I think that line of argument is a really powerful one. Um, Hartree Field sort of uh, famously called it the, um, the only non-baking argument, non-question-baking argument for Platonism. Um, so I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I'm, at the end of the day, the arguments that I wish were more powerful and I'm especially interested in are the kind of uh, what I call arguments from metaphysical explanation. Um, and these are the kinds of arguments that uh, issue from th- sort of reflection on phenomena like causation or the laws of nature or uh, modal phenomena like necessity and possibility. And once you find yourself sort of engaged in the kind of metaphysical assay of those uh, phenomena, it often f- seems really hard to give a sort of meaningful account without at some point invoking something like a property or a proposition or some other kind of abstract entity. And so I think if you start actually looking through a lot of philosophical projects to make sense of things like laws, um, along with other sort of um, philosophical phenomena, you you find this almost carefree appeal to things like properties and propositions. There's a way in which... Um, if we were to give up abstract entities, I think it's a striking thing that a heck of a lot of metaphysics and metaphysical projects would have to go. Could you give an example of one that would like go? Sure. I mean, um, so familiar views about the laws of nature hold, for example, I, I mean, whether or not you think this is the right view about laws of nature is that um, laws are relations between universals, um, relations between sort of um, mass universals and universals like electron hood. Um, Similarly, explanations about possibility. If you think, for example, uh, that there is a possibility according to which I'm taller, uh, it looks like we're sort of quantifying over possibilities. And we might think, for example, um, to give a sort of maybe a slightly hackneyed example, if you think that there are only three ways to win the sort of chess game, there's a way in which we find ourselves committed to these sorts of these entities, these possibilities, and trying to make sense of our modal discourse. And our modal discourse is extremely uh, pervasive. And so I, I tend to think that trying to make good on a lot of our thought and talk in a systematic and informative way, it, it's hard. Um, the nominalist line is a hard one to toe because um, getting away from a commitment to those sorts of creatures is a, is a difficult undertaking. Well, does, is, it, is it true that the that the debates go, as you put it, or or is it just that we need to reformulate the terms of the debates? Uh, can you say a little bit more? Uh, so, for example, I mean, you, you gave the example of laws of nature and the, the idea that these are somehow relations between universals. You know, it's kind of a standard view. Um, and then, of course, that, that seems to commit you to universals as long as you think that there are laws. Um, and so if you don't think there are, you know, universals, if you don't think that they are abstract entities of some sort, it seems to me, it seems that that whole debate about whether there maybe are laws of nature or something come, somehow disappears. Um, and so my, my question, just to put it in, in those terms, would be, well, you could have a, it, it seems to me, I, I don't know how exactly it might be reformulated, but... It, it seems that you could have a debate, you know, maybe in the vicinity uh, in, in 
in which the important aspects or, you know, whatever, whatever reasons that you're having the debate to begin with would be continued. It's just that you wouldn't be trying to solve the problem using, uh, you know, tools that maybe just aren't very good anymore, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right that, um, it, it would be bizarre if all of a sudden, like we, we all wake up and we're nominalists and then we're like, by the way, let's never talk about the laws of nature again. Um, I, I think, um, you're, you're surely right that there's gotta be some dispute there that could be undertaken even in the absence of a commitment to abstract entities. I guess the, um, um, and that, that, that sounds right. I think the, the worry, or at least one argument is that for Platonism is to give them up is to give up some of our most promising theoretical options in offering comprehensive views about the laws of nature, or maybe um, a better example is the sort of case of modality, making sense of possibility and necessity without helping ourselves to sort of quantification over some things um, and that are possibilities, I think is, is, is difficult. So I don't, I don't doubt that we could, we could still have those debates and those debates would change. Um, but I think that you um, do lose certain philosophical resources of a really significant sort if you did give up on on abstract entities. Um, and, and that's maybe the, the sort of case for Platonism. Now, one, one view you could have, and I think this is the view that the nominalists need to go in for, is that any of the metaphysical explanations that you'd purport to give the involving abstract entities, they're just not going to be especially good, um, that not much is lost. Um, and I think that that's um, a really interesting question. Nominalism, then. I mean, what's the main reason that we should be that we should be nominalists then yeah i i actually think that there are um a bunch of 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 arguments on offer of of competing of, of varying strengths um so in, in the book i try and work through sort of a course of like three or four um sort of independent chapters, um, the kind of considerations some people tend to offer in favor of nominalism. So maybe I'll just sort of mention a few of them. Um, one, one thought you'll sometimes hear is that nominalism is, uh, a sort of does justice to Occam's razor, that it delivers a simpler theory of the world, um, in contrast to sort of the grandeur of Platonism and the sort of profligate commitments that come with it. Um, I, I worry about any argument of that sort. I tend to think that those sorts of arguments aren't aren't especially compelling um, for a bunch of sort of questions about uh, that are bound up with some issues regarding how to compare the complexity of theories and what it is to sort of uh, pursue parsimonious um, philosophical theories. Other arguments you'll sometimes get are sort of uh, premised upon worries about um, I guess defects in the metaphysical gizmos that Platonists like. So things like Bradley's regress purports to find problems with um, things like properties or universals. Um, you'll also find sort of appeals to uh, a kind of endemic paradoxicality of abstract and of reality that somehow any, any theory that involves abstract entities is gonna at some point um, commit you to some paradox or other. I don't think those arguments are um, all that powerful. Um, and I think that if you sort of try to cast around and find the sort of argument that motivates most nominalists, it's probably going to be one that is grounded in this worry about our sort of um, epistemic contact with the abstract realm. Um, one way to kind of make this, to bring this to salience, and it's an argument that sort of um, 
commonly associated with Paul Banasraf and sort of reformulated by Hartree Field is this idea that if abstract entities are these things that are sort of a causal sort of causally inert creatures existing outside of space and time. And we're these concrete physical things. And our knowledge of the world is ultimately grounded in our ability to kind of bump into things or talk to people who bumped into something. How is it the case we're in a position to have knowledge about this sort of domain or realm of abstract entities? It seems accounting for our knowledge of abstract realities is an extremely difficult task. And I think that there's a way in which um, a lot of anomalists are motivated by a kind of you know, they despair of the prospects of trying to explain our, our access to, to abstract reality. Um, so th- those are at least uh, a few that um, motivate many nominalists. And there are other ones on offer. I'll, I'll, I suspect I'll talk about um, uh, kind of modal concern in a little bit. But another worry that often crops up is that um, choosing from among the myriad nom- Platonist options um, just can't successfully be done. Um, there's just, as it were, too many Platonist theories out there, and a kind of informed and principled choice from among them isn't isn't something we can manage. Is this is this the non uniqueness and and underdetermination issues? Yeah, um, maybe you could say so, a word about that because I thought that was that was um, somewhat somewhat new to me. So I thought that was um, an interesting discussion. If you could get to that, yeah, yeah. So. Um, one thing that's kind of striking if you start surveying the arguments against Platonism is that many of them um, take aim at specific um, kinds of Platonist commitments. So, for example, certain some arguments like Bradley's regress take issue with universals. Um, others, uh, I kind of worry about non-uniqueness, uh, take issue with uh, set theory or at least familiar ontologies of mathematics. And the sort of Again, this is an argument that actually sort of owes primarily to Paul Benassaraf. The worry is that if you think that there are things like numbers, but you really are impressed by the theoretical accomplishments of set theory and the power that comes with set theory, one view you might like is set theoretic reductionism, this idea that we can somehow reduce or identify um, uh, our arithmetical theories with set theory, that we can identify numbers, for example, with sets. Um, the worry Benassaraf points to is that um, this works too well. Um, there are a vast array of ways of reducing arithmetic to set theory, and each of these ways is going to proceed by differently identifying numbers with sets. But the worry here is that if there's a range of ways of identifying numbers with sets, it seems like any one of those reductions is going to be as good as any other reduction. But guess what? If the number seven is identical to this set, I don't really know how to communicate which set it is via podcast, but my hands are doing a lot of things, then it can't be identical to the other set that's distinct from that first set. And so the worry here is that we'd be forced into a weird kind of arbitrary um, metaphysical decision, that there'd be this kind of non-uniqueness of the reduction of arithmetic to set theory. And this would somehow um, render problematic the project of identifying numbers with sets. And indeed, a lot of philosophers have taken it to show that there's something wrong with um, familiar versions of Platonism. Um, one moral that's often drawn from it is that numbers can't be objects. They have to be very different sorts of things. They have to be, for example, structures. Um, on such views, there isn't such a thing as the number seven. There's really like the number seven role that something can play in a certain kind of mathematical theory. Um, so that non-uniqueness problem is um, a problem that has its sort of home in the philosophy of mathematics. But I think that there's a nearby problem um, bound up with worries about underdetermination that, that Platonists should worry about. I don't think it's a, um, uh, an ultimately compelling worry, but it's that 
there are a surfeit of theoretical options in trying to do the kind of work most Platonists want to get done. Um, in making sense of our mathematical discourse, in making sense of our best semantic theories, in making sense of our talk about properties. Um, and you could, for example, take on a view on which there's three kinds of things. There are numbers, there are sets, oh, sorry, there are numbers, there are properties, and there are propositions. Um, but there's another alternative. You could posit um, just a reality of sets as well as some properties and then construct propositions out of sets and properties. And you can sort of generate a quite a large menu of various options. And you end up with this sort of puzzle about how you would um, offer a principled reason for believing one Platonist theory over another. And the worry that, that I'm kind of concerned with for Platonists is that you might be in this sort of peculiar epistemic position where it makes good sense to believe that there are abstract entities. Oh, which ones? I have no idea, but the ones that get the job done. Um, and so that's the the sort of underdetermination worry that that I think Platonists should be interested in. Um, I should think so because if if um, if we're supposed to have any claims about knowledge, if if any of these claims are supposed to be knowledge, and yet we can't identify what it is that we're supposed to have knowledge about, then it seems like uh, the. It, it, the underdetermined or the arbitrariness, just to put it that way, just just completely demolishes the the the, the Platonist position. I I think you're I think it's worrisome. Um, one thought for Platonists might be that um, nothing on their theory, nothing in the theory, sort of hangs on knowing that the object of my knowledge is a set rather than a proposition or a property rather than a proposition or a proposition rather than a property as a word hangs on knowing that there's some object out there that is the sort of object of my cognitive attitude. Um, but, but then you get this sort of weird worry where it's sort of like, well, if you don't really know anything about the intrinsic nature of these entities, how do you know that they're the kinds of things that can be objects of attitudes? Um, there, there's, a, I think, a serious explanatory worry that bubbles up if you spend time um, thinking about the kind of arbitrariness and theory choices Platonists are forced into. Yeah. Um, well, then let's, you know, you mentioned you, you label, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but ontologies, nominalism, <laughs> when I take it, that's a kind of a ontologies is, is like, you know, English or that sort of a thing. Um, so that's your your label, I think. I guess for the best nominalist option um, for understanding uh, the objects of our propositional attitudes and so forth. Uh, could you could you explain what what ontologies nominalism is? Yeah, I I confess to being um, actually sort of um, drawn in sort of three directions. I, I quite like nominalist postulism and sort of uh, ideological nominalism as well, but that. Um, um, I, I profess neutrality about which of these is maybe the best way for nominalists to go. Um, but, but ontologies, I think, is, is um, or sort of the what you might think of the sort of the ontologies nominalist is a, is a powerful thought. Um, so the, the name, I think, owes to, I think, Ted Sider. Um, but certainly there's been some um, important work on this by Kean Dorr and Dan Corman and others, Eli Hirsch. Um, and roughly speaking, the thought would be that we go wrong in undertaking or thinking that we should undertake our metaphysical disputes in a natural language like English. Um, we would do better, we ought to, in fact, um, 
undertake these sort of metaphysical disputes and ask questions about whether they're abstract entities in a language that's sort of distinctively metaphysically and sort of semantically privileged. So the idea would be, and it requires a, importing a bunch of machinery from David Lewis's uh, philosophical views. Um, the idea is that there's something special about the quantifiers, expressions like there are, there is, um, of ontologies. They're the ones that, as it were, carve nature in the right way. Um, they're the sort of maybe most perspicuous, the most useful for capturing what there is fundamentally speaking. And so one view you might have is that the question of whether it's true in English that there are numbers, that's not the sort of uh, relevant question that we should be pursuing when we ask, when we sort of take up this sort of anomalous Platonist dispute. What we should be asking and we should be asking it in the language that we take to be the sort of most perspicuous, the one that sort of is bound up with questions about what there is fundamentally speaking, um, is whether there are numbers in ontologies. Um, is the sentence there are numbers as a sentence of ontologies, though, as of course I'm saying it, it sounds sort of homophonic with a sentence of English. Um, the idea is sort of fundamentally speaking, um, we can adjudicate these questions or at least broach these questions. And then, so if, if we grant that there's this sort of uh, separable language that's uniquely privileged for asking this question about whether there's whether there are numbers, whether they're abstract entities, and we sort of, um, we could sort of undertake that dispute and let's suppose we're nominalists, so we deny that there are abstract entities. Um, our question is then going to arise, well, if there are no numbers, fundamentally speaking, then how can it be the case that I can say sentences like there are prime numbers and not be sort of doing something sort of bizarre or sort of self-defeating. This is where a bunch of recent work in meta-ontology has is, is played a kind of critical role, and I don't go into much of it in, in the book, but it sort of hangs on connecting up in some way um, the non-fundamental languages like English, in which we might permissibly and reasonably say there are numbers, with facts about the world as stated in ontologies. So the idea behind this picture would be one in which the kinds of claims we make in English, anything goes. I mean, not anything goes. Um, you can't say there are no tables in English. That would be a bad sentence to utter in English. Um, but um, we could reconcile in some principled way the fact that there are prime numbers as a true sentence of English with the fact that there are no abstract entities, fundamentally speaking, is a true sentence of ontologies. So let me just uh, – let me ask a question about – you mentioned primitivism before – uh, or uh, as you put in the book, an austere primitivism as the best, you know, maybe the strongest view way to articulate a, a Platonist view. Um, and one of the one of the questions I had, given the fact that abstract entities are supposed to do a certain amount of explanatory work in terms of being the reference of term, you know, certain terms and explaining how it is that certain sentences can be true and so forth. Um, and what, one of the questions I had about the primitivist view was that as with any sort of primitivism, at least, at least to my initial uh, confrontation with such views, uh, once you go a primitivist route, it seems like there's a certain amount of explanatory power that gets lost. Uh, you, you know, you just sort of end up saying, you know, why do you think there's this? Well, just, just because, right. It just, that's just the way it is. And I was just wondering, does the, does the primitivist view of abstract entities, you know, the idea that they, they, they can't be analyzed in terms of, 
you know, causal, you know, lack of causal relations or, 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 or the fact that we can't, can't really say anything positive about them. It's only negative stuff. Uh, does that deprive the position of any explanatory power? Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I wrestle with this question a lot because I think it figuring out what the sort of most viable version of, of Platonism is, is, is pretty critical. Um, as I sort of think about the view, it's um, one way of trying to locate where um, we hit sort of philosophical ground floor. So the kind of primitive view I have in mind, and it's kind of austerity, is that um, one view you might have about abstract reality is that it's extremely um, – uh, heterogeneous. So it includes things like fictional characters, musical works, soup recipes, GDPs, um, I don't know, directions, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, the view that I, I focus on in the book is uh, a kind of austere Platonism in that it sort of focuses on precisely the kinds of entities I've been talking about. Um, so mathematical entities, properties, whether they're conceived of as universals or, or sets, uh, and then propositions. And one thing that's sort of striking about those entities is that they seem to have fair claim to satisfying some sort of core features. They do seem plausible candidates, at least at first glance, to be sort of necessary existence outside of space time, to be a causal. They also seem to be the kinds of things that we can, um, if you think about, for example, Gottlob Frager's remarks about propositions and our ability to grasp them, they seem to have these kind of remarkable features. And one really interesting question is like, why do they have these remarkable features? Like, why is a proposition, a thing that exists outside of space and time and has no causal powers, the kind of thing that can be the content of my thought? I think that's a really puzzling question for Platonists. And I think a lot of Platonists um, maybe haven't taken, faced up to the challenge of accounting for it. Um, one way of uh, trying to answer it in a way that I don't think is very successful is to say like, hey, why can a proposition be the object of my thought? Well, because it's outside of space time. That, that, that seems patently unsatisfactory. I think that if you keep kind of casting around, you'll end up with um, perhaps no better explanation than pointing out abstract entities are just the kinds of things that have these sorts of features. They're the kinds of things that are graspable. They're the kinds of things that exist necessarily. They're the kinds of things that would exist outside of space time. That view ends up being less stable as you sort of include, uh, include more and more uh, various kinds of abstract entities. But as it concerns the kind of austere cluster of of entities we're interested in. There's a way in which it, it forms a kind of natural philosophical view on which the explanation for the distinctive features of numbers, properties, and propositions is that they're abstract entities and they have these features in virtue of being abstract. Um, and so, you know, there's a way in which maybe this sounds kind of like an essency based explanation. It sort of sounds like the essence of an abstract entity is to do thus and so um, or to behave in such and such a way. And you know, if you worry about those kinds of explanations, you should probably worry about this kind of Platonism, this kind of primitivist Platonism. Um, does it cost an explanatory power? I think the way that I would think about it is that it gets explanatory power, but in an extremely precarious way, because um, it offers a way of explaining, at least at, at first glance, the fact that abstract entities exist necessarily, exist outside of space-time, and are cognitively accessible to us. But it does so by sort of locating the ground floor by saying like, well, that's because they're abstract and not much more can be said than that. Now, it's precarious in the following sense. If you just think that that's a deeply impoverished kind of explanation, or if you don't think that that's where the sort of chains of explanation can terminate, then you're going to think that 
what someone what someone else will find is sort of explanatory powerful making sense of a lot of stuff uh, is that it's not really an explanation at all it's just kind of metaphysical witchcraft so let me we're we're running out of time so i do i do want to ask at least one last substantive question uh before the absolute final question um uh you end the book with a question about you know that the debate in some way kind of comes down to the question of what do we want from our metaphysical theories? Um, and I was just wondering if you could maybe wrap up the discussion a bit by addressing the, the question that you, uh, that you raise at the end of the book. I mean, what, what, what is it that we want from our metaphysical theories, given that this whole debate is about what the best metaphysical theory should be? You know, unsurprisingly, you know, the, the sort of pat answer is, you know, different people want different things. Um, but that, that's, I mean, so deeply unsatisfactory. So, I, I, you know, here's some some sort of metaphysical autobiography. Um, I find the sort of demand for um, a kind of uh, naturalistic accommodation of our best scientific theories critically important. I think it seems strange to do a heck of a lot of um, damage to the interpretation of scientific theories by dispensing with abstract entities. Um, I think that that's um, worrisome. I think that one challenge for Platonists um, is, among other things, trying to integrate abstract entities in sort of um, plausible ways into our sort of best understanding of how science and metaphysics might work. And I think one thing you sort of see in recent work on uh, debates over Platonism and arguments over Platonism is a sort of increased focus on not just these kind of arguments, well, that proceed from the sentence, there are prime numbers is true, do prime numbers exist, um, but rather a sort of focus on how mathematical entities might actually figure into scientific explanations. So I, I, I would foreground that sort of naturalistic constraint. And this is, and, and now here's why I'm sort of of two minds. I'm also um, deeply sympathetic to this kind of Humean insight that there's something peculiar about positing necessary connections between distinct existences in thinking that um, the existence of one thing on the other side, on one side of the universe must somehow sort of be invariably correlated with the existence of some other thing. And so this kind of Humean view about um, modality and the sort of denial of necessary connections, um, it's obviously kind of driven a lot of uh, recent metaphysics. One question I think is you've got on the one hand this kind of naturalistic fidelity that you want in your metaphysics and this apparently kind of a priori insight into modality that there couldn't be necessary connections between distinct existences. And I guess what I would want out of a metaphysical theory is some way of usefully integrating them uh, without ending up with something that's um, you know, woefully unlovely. Um, to my mind, the, the real question is just going to be, um, I, I sort of genuinely believe in this kind of enterprise of metaphysical progress that kind of grinding through the space of philosophical options slowly, patiently, and eyeballing the various criteria um, by which theories succeed or fail, I, I think that that gets us towards um, maybe an inventory from which we can choose. But um, yeah, I wish I had a... a if I had more concrete views about the the uniquely correct philosophical methodology, this would be probably more than a slightly opinionated book. Right. Well, um, so that I guess we're, we're out of time. So that kind of brings me to the last question, which is what is on your plate next? Are you following up the book or are you turning to other other issues entirely? What's what's on your plate? 
uh, I got tenure about two ye- two weeks ago, so I'm mostly going to be working on my jump shot for a little while. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, no, I um, so um, of the things that I would do differently in rewriting this book, uh, one thing is there's a kind of systematic omission of Pythagoreanism. So the Pythagoreanism, at least in its sort of contemporary context, is this view that if you think, sort of think about the Platonist as positing an abstract reality in addition to concrete entities and the nominalist as denying there's an abstract reality, the Pythagorean is like clearly the weirder view insofar as it claims that all of reality is abstract. Um, I, I find this kind of dizzying and sort of incomprehensible, but at times I'm, I'm kind of impressed by the space of theoretical options it opens up. I think there's ways in which thinking really hard about um, how the apparently concrete world might be connected up to mathematical reality in in sort of counterintuitive ways might open up some sort of neat spaces uh, for thinking about things like the applicability problem, why, for example, mathematics is so applicable to the physical world. And I think it raises some interesting questions about um, contingency and um, necessity and sort of intrinsic nature that, you know, sort of come up in this book, but I don't really get to chase down in uh, in full detail. So, you know, if if I had to project forward, I suspect I'm going to be thinking about Pythagoreanism for for a good while. Um, I I worry about trying to write a book defending it, but I'd sure like to write a book um, asking why did everybody forget about Pythagoreanism? Oh well, that sounds uh, that sounds very interesting, um, and I definitely look forward to seeing something about that. I mean, that's the the whole idea that somehow the language of nature is written in mathematics. I mean, that's, that's kind of a modern Pythagorean view in a way. And um, so I, I look forward to uh, reading about that. Thank you very much. But at the moment we are, we are out of time. So uh, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with new books in philosophy. Great. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Sam Cowling, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Denison University. We've been talking about his new book, Abstract Entities, which is just out from Routledge as part of its New Problems in Philosophy series. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thank you for listening.